Well, good morning once again. Um, we come to the last book in the Bible. It was actually January 13th, 2019, when we started with Genesis and have gone through book by book with various breaks and pauses in between. And uh, we have now, after today, visited every book in the Bible. Um, obviously, well, maybe not obviously, but, but obvious to me, when, when we open up Revelation and I think about, I just have one Sunday to get into this book, uh, there, there's a multitude of different possibilities in terms of what I could cover and what, what would be the, the topic or, or the little bit out of this book that I would uh, choose to emphasize this morning. Uh, some, some books, even some of the longer books, are very clear in their message, and, and it's easy to understand and to pick out what is the main theme and to focus on that. Uh, Revelation, though, though it's not one of the longest books, it covers the most space. In fact, we don't even know how much space it covers because it covers from creation to the final culmination of history and in the eternity uh, with God and, and, and everything in, in, in all of its uh, imagery and uh, illustrations and complexity. And so um, what I ended up deciding to do is something I haven't done with any of the other books. I've decided to approach Revelation from the point of view of my personal testimony of my, my long and complicated relationship with this book. And so I'm going to tell you a story of, of, of how I've interacted with this book over the years, and, and I, think, um, uh, I think that's the right thing to do this morning, and that's what, what I'm going to take a moment for. Now, speaking about testimony, though, next Sunday is Communion Sunday, and what I plan to do next Sunday, because we're now going to be finished the entire Bible, is I'm going to set up some microphones around the room so that uh, you can come up to the microphone without having to touch and things like that. And I'm going to ask you the question, out of all of these, uh, these books or these things we've looked at since January 13, 2019, what is the one thing or what's the most important thing that you're taking away from it? How has God spoken to you? And of course, there's as many answers to that question as, as there are people. Uh, but you, you might, um, for example, think, you know, there's, there's a book uh, in the Bible that I never read before, but because of this series, I read it, and it made an impact on me. It changed something, something in my relationship with God. Or maybe it's something I said in one of the sermons that, that's still stuck in your memory all these many days later. Or maybe it's a conversation that you had with, with someone else, with a friend or, or in a Bible study that kind of came out of, out, out of these, um, these messages. And so I'd, I'd like to invite you next Sunday on Communion Sunday to share with us and bring the message from the, from the floor. Uh, what, what is something that's changed or how have, have one or several of these uh, messages, these books, uh, changed your relationship with God and helped you to grow? So I hope we'll have way more people coming up than we have time, uh, but we'll see what happens. And irregardless, we will remember the Lord's death until he comes with the bread and the wine next Sunday. So um, my first memory of Revelation comes from grade six or seven. I don't remember which, but it was in that time period in my life. And before that, I don't think I had any conscious uh, knowledge that such a thing existed as the book of Revelation. 
Uh, obviously, in Sunday school, we memorized the books, and I knew it was there, but I'd never read it. I'd never paid attention. But uh, my dad, as you all know, was a pastor, and we were living, uh, he was the pastor of the, uh, of the uh, Associated Gospel Church in Davidson, Saskatchewan at the time. And he brought, uh, he brought to our church the movies, uh, The Late Great Planet Earth by Hal Lindsey. And uh, that was popular in those days. And, and thinking back in my memory now, I, I know it was a great success for him as a pastor. Maybe not as a father, but as a pastor. Uh, because, because the church was full. I remember the church was packed. Uh, people from our church, people from other churches, and, and people that didn't normally go to church came to those movies. And I, and I remember, I mean, I couldn't phone my dad and ask him if I was accurate or not, but I seem to remember that, that out of those movies, there were several people that he spent time with in discipleship and brought them uh, into the life of the church as a result of, of that. But my personal memory is quite different. You have to understand that, that we never had a TV in our home, and we weren't allowed to go to movies in, in my house. Uh, I think it was grade 11 when I first uh, went to a movie against my parents' wishes in the movie theater. And, and so I had no exposure to, to the emotional impact that, that a, a motion picture could have. And I remember about probably halfway through the first, uh, the first night of those movies, um, I made an excuse to my friends that I was going to the bathroom. And I went into the back of the church. And I don't think I've ever told anyone this before, so you're, you're the first in on my secret. I went into the kitchen, and I crawled into the cupboard underneath the counter and closed the door and stayed in that cupboard until my parents were closing off the lights and locking the doors of the church, and everyone had gone. I was so traumatized, I hid in the cupboard. And I, and, and I, I determined on that day that I would never entertain Revelation again. I wouldn't read it. I wouldn't listen to it. If anyone was talking about it, I'd leave the room. I was severely traumatized. It's funny looking back now, but it was, it was serious to me then. And I, and I pretty much kept that promise up until I was in Bible college. And um, you can see a picture here of Ontario Bible College where Colleen and I met in the hallways. And, um, and when I got to Bible college, I couldn't, I couldn't follow through on that promise to never engage with Revelation again because... I had an assignment, and I had to uh, I had to read Revelation, and I had to uh, look at the different positions: premillennial, postmillennial, or amillennial. And I don't care if you don't know what those terms mean, because it's not important to what I'm talking about today. But those were the controversial through the '60s and '70s and '80s. You kind of could tell which uh, theological camp you belong to based on your position on those uh, those end times strategies or interpretations. And so the assignment was to pick one of the positions as the one that I believed was right and then defend it against the other positions in a, in a written paper. And so I had to read it. Now, I was a young adult, so I, I was a little more emotionally equipped, and I was able to read Revelation. I thought, oh, that wasn't so bad as I thought maybe it was going to be, but I had avoided it up until that time. And, uh, and I remember reading a book that defended the premillennial position, and thinking, that absolutely makes sense. That author's got it right. That's the position I'm going to take. And I don't care what the other guys say. I'm going to defend this position. 
And then I read the next book from the post-millennial position, and I thought, that absolutely makes sense. He gets it all right, makes the best arguments possible. This is the position I'm going to take, and I'm going to defend it against the other positions. And then I read a book by an author who took the amillennial position, and I thought, that absolutely makes sense. It makes the most sense of the most scriptures, and I'm going to take that position and defend it against the other, the other ones. And so... At the same time, at the very same time, I was taking another class on principles of biblical interpretation. And one of, the, one of the main principles that we were being taught in this other class was that you never take obscure and difficult to interpret passages to illuminate obvious and clear passages. You always take the obvious and clear passages that all theologians agree on and then you go from there into the more difficult and obscure uh, difficult to interpret passages. And it kind of didn't make sense to me because it seemed to me that if the best minds and the best biblical scholars in the world couldn't agree on this issue, that how in the world did I have a hope in figuring out what it meant? And how in the world did I have a hope of, of understanding uh, those things? And so I don't actually remember which position I took for the paper, but I know I faked one of them so I could get a mark. And uh, my own heart, though, went into a position which, which is sometimes uh, lovingly referred to as I became a panmillennialist. Anyone know that one? It's all going to pan out in the end. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I believe God's going to work it out. It'll all pan out. Uh, we know Jesus, like it's not controversial. All the positions agree Jesus is coming back and that, that that's going to be the end of things and, and justice will be brought upon the world and the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord will come and we will be with him in glory. So that kind of became my position uh, for, for a period of time and it's, um, and you probably understand why I don't talk about Revelation very often in my sermons because of my history with it. But um, there, there's another experience that came along, and it's in, in the form of a song that I think opened up Revelation to a place where I could read it and get, get real value from God out of it for the first time. I'm going to play you that song. Um, it's not a very good song, so don't, uh, don't criticize my mu- musical tastes, but it kind of opened something up in me, opened a door in me where I could, I could uh, read Revelation with, with even, even excitement and pleasure. Now you have to understand, of course, that this was in the days when we listened to music on big black discs that had little grooves in them. Anyone know about that? And, uh, and Larry Norman was an artist. Some of you know him. Many of you have never heard of him. Uh, he was too religious, no one in the record stores would sell his albums, but he was too secular, the Christian bookstores wouldn't sell his albums, so the only way you could get his, his music was if you actually went to a concert and bought it from him directly. And uh, so, being as that wasn't in my, in my wheelhouse, I would spend hours in Sam the Record Man in downtown Toronto, where they had four floors of vinyl at the time, and, you know, people would bring in a milk crate of vinyl and trade it for their favorite record, and they'd, they'd all, they wouldn't know what to do with, with this type of music, so they'd always file it in the wrong place. So you had to search the entire store to find uh, this kind of stuff. And so, so my friends and I would go searching and find the good music. And, um, and this is the song that kind of gave me a new, a new in 
to, to this part of the Bible. I'm going to play it for you. It'll mean nothing to you. You'll shake your head and say, what in the world was he listening to? And, uh, and we'll move on with this story. A thief fell out of heaven with some loaded eyes. But the lamb rolled the seven back to paradise. The bread was finally leavened, so I had a slice. And the sun began to rain. Water swelled from fountains and then turned to wine. Rocks fell from the mountains in a chorus line. He came in tails and top hat and he looked so fine. Yes, the sun began to rain. A fox snuck in to steal away the grapes. But the man It's hard to stop there because that's actually the introduction to set up to the next song, which is much better. But um, what he does there is he does something that I think in some ways, I don't want to compare him to John, but in some ways is similar to what John does in Revelation. He takes imagery from the scriptures and he mashes it together with imagery from the 70s, from cultural uh, touch points from the 70s. You know, you can see a couple of references to the popular musical Jesus Christ Superstar and, and some other things in there that kind of a little bit before my time, but close enough that I can pick up some of the references. And he, and he, he uses poetry to kind of mash current events, current cultural symbols with biblical symbols. And he does it in a very, I think we could say, playful way. It's a serious subject matter. Uh, if Jesus is going to reign on this earth and we're going to turn our focus on the physical sun and whether it's going to rain today on our picnic to, to, to the, the Son of God and, and His eternal reign, and he, he kind of puts that together in a, in a more playful way. And what, what that song did for me is it opened me up to the possibility that I could read Revelation from my heart rather than from my head. And that changed things for me. Because if you sit down with the book and start at the beginning and read all the way through in one sitting and you, you just let the emotions of the imagery, the, the powerful imagery roll over you, it's a, it's a total experience that, that I think has, has a lot of value. That doesn't mean we shouldn't engage with it intellectually, uh, but, but if we do that too much, we're probably just going to fight over what this or that means, which is okay to do. Uh, it's good to be intellectually honest and vigorous in our interpretation of Scripture, but it has this other value as well in terms of, of it. It moves us emotionally. And that's where I want to end my story is, is with that. And, and I'm going to skip over this section of my sermon because um, it was far more interesting to listen to Grace pack shoeboxes than to me talk about that stuff. So I'm going to skip that. Um, the next chapter of my story comes from this building. This is, the, in the current picture that you see, it's not a church, but, but that was the building where I first became a pastor and was, was uh, preaching.
preaching in this church building, and we lived, you can see the little white garage on the house there where, where Colleen and I lived, and it's the location where, where Matthew and Laurel were born. Well, not in that house, but nearby. <laughs> and uh, it, it's a small town, smaller now than it was then even, and, and there, was, there was literally nothing for the young people to do. And so I was, I was doing a weekly, um, sometimes Friday, sometimes Saturday, but weekly uh, games nights for all the youth in town, drop-in center. Uh, and, and because there was nothing else, literally all the youth came. And, and I've, I've, I soon discovered that if I did the devotion in the first hour, so for some reason most of the kids wouldn't come till the second hour. If I did the devotional at 11.30, because we closed at 12, then, then most of the kids had to go home before, you know, around 11, 11.30. So, so I just did the devotional randomly. They could never tell when it was going to be. And so if they wanted to play ping pong and foosball, they had to come. And if they, and if they, they, they never knew when they'd have to leave if they didn't want to skip the devotional. So, um, and, and given the situation, I made them very short, like three to five minutes maximum devotionals uh, in, those, in those drop-in center nights. But on one of those nights, um, one of the young men that was there in grade 12, he became a Christian. I didn't know it. Uh, it was a short three to five minute devotional. Uh, and what, what I found out is, is two, of the, two of the young guys in the... In the uh, town were from our church and their parents or their mother at least was a member of our church and uh, they lived right next door to the young man who became a Christian that night so they were good friends always in each other's places boys the same age in grade 11 and 12 and uh, she asked me what happened to David I said what do you mean what happened to David he said well well I've never seen this before the last two days, he's been in the backyard doing yard work for his mother. Now, of course, neighbors, the two ladies were good friends, and, and she always complained about, about her, her derelict son who never did anything. And he was in the backyard uh, doing, doing yard work. But far more extraordinary is these were the days of, of where in high school goth was popular, and he was, he was goth. He had black hair down to his waist, it always covered at least half of his face, sometimes his whole face. And uh, you, you never knew. He, he was a dark, like he was a nice enough guy, but, but his presence was dark. And she said, he's in the backyard, his hair's in a ponytail, I can see his face, and he's smiling all day. What happened to David? And so uh, next time I talked with David, I asked him what happened. And, and he didn't have the language. He had no context to put what happened. He never knew about born again. He didn't know about prayer, how to pray. He didn't know if he ever had prayed in his life. He didn't even know what that was. He'd never opened a Bible. He, he knew nothing. He couldn't tell what happened. He didn't have the language. He didn't have the Christianese. But, but as I chatted with him, I found that during that devotional, he had given his heart to Jesus. And he had found a weight lift off his shoulders, the, the heaviness that had made him dark and keep his head down and his hair in front of his face. And he had no desire to hide anymore. He didn't even realize he'd done, made those changes. They just happened. And so being a pastor, and I think you would have done this the same, even if, even if you weren't the pastor, I thought, well, the next step is discipleship. We've got to get going with this. This is new life. This is very exciting. And so uh, I suggested to him that we would meet once, uh, once a week and... And we 
would read some portion of the Bible together and discuss it and learn to know God because God reveals himself in his word. Well, he knew immediately what he wanted to read. And guess what he wanted to read? Revelation. And I thought, that's the, that's the worst place to start for discipleship. Uh, but he didn't know anything else. The only exposure he had to the Bible was in some of the dark games he played. They used creatures from Revelation, dark demonic creatures from Revelation were in the games he played. So that's the only biblical reference he had. So he said, well, let's start there. It's the only thing he knew to say. And so I don't know if it was wise or not, but I said, okay, we'll read Revelation. We'll see where that takes us. I didn't want to scare him off with something more easy to understand. And uh, the next week then, a week later, he came back And I said, okay, so did you do any reading in Revelation? And I I was prepared, like all the controversies, all the answers. I was kind of nervous about this. Um, And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you know, how much did you read? He said, oh, I read the whole thing several times. Oh, okay, Uh, how did that go? He said, it went great. And I said, well, well, what did you learn? What did you think? And he went, we win! (laughs) And that was it. That was his takeaway. He didn't have any of the Christian cultural references of all the controversy. He just read it straight from his heart. And he knew two weeks ago I was on the side that loses and now I'm on the side that wins. And that's all that mattered to him. He was so excited about Revelation. It's the best thing he'd ever read. The most encouraging thing he'd ever encountered. History is going somewhere And I'm with Jesus, which means I'm on the winning side. That's all he needed to understand, and he was just so excited. And I thought, you know, Jesus did tell us that unless we come to him like little children, we will not inherit the kingdom. This guy was a teenager, but he came at it like a little child. Brand new, fresh, no preconceived ideas. And I think he got the message correct. In Revelation, God says, if we are with Jesus, we win. If we're with Jesus, we win. And that's where I think some of our difficulties come. Because what does it mean to win? What does it even mean to fight? And Jesus gave us his marching orders, you know, many places. But let's just take this one for example. Matthew chapter 5. Verse 43, you have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. And that way you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives his sunlight on both the evil and the good, and he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. What kind of battle orders are those? Foolishness to this world, but wisdom to the followers of Jesus Christ. We don't fight the way the world fights. We go a different way if we follow Jesus. And if, uh, if I understand, again, we, we could go different ways in Revelation, but there's a A very important description. Jesus is referred to as the lamb that was slain. 
but yet still lives. 28 times in the verses of Revelation. Now I know we have the image of him coming on a horse. We have the image of the the flaming sword out of his mouth. And those are are powerful and important images. But I think the primary image, the, the one we're to latch on to here in Revelation, is the lamb that was slain and yet lives. 28 times. The most common depiction of Jesus in Revelation. I just want to focus our attention for a few minutes yet on, on that image. It first comes in uh, chapter 5, so this is just after the seven churches uh, the, who this writing is addressed to. And we have this depiction of a scroll that, that if it is opened will reveal so many things will reveal the mysteries of God and the eternity of his people with him and, and, and the judgments that will come. It's a, it's a very important scroll, but no one is found who can open the scroll. No one is worthy. And John begins to cry as he's in this vision and he wants to see what's in the scroll and it's so important for the world and for, for the church to know what's in the scroll, but no one can open it. And then one is found who is worthy to open it and, and the one who is found is the Lion of David. The, the, the prophetic Messiah, the figure that goes all the way back through the Old Testament till now. And yes, this one is worthy. The, the one that comes from God, the, the divine human, is, is worthy to open. The king of kings is worthy to open the scroll. And then when John turns his head, because he hears this with his ears, but he doesn't see the one who is worthy who's been found. And he turns his head to look at the lion... And what he sees with his eyes is a lamb that has been slaughtered, a sacrificial lamb, but yet is still alive. And we know this is Jesus. He died for our sins. He took our iniquities upon himself. He he defeated death and the devil and evil and sin in the grave, and he rose victorious. But he still had the wounds. They could still see the, the nail holes and the spear in his side the lamb that was slain and yet lives is worthy to open the scroll and when he opens the scroll what is revealed I'm not reading the whole passages because it would take it would take us a couple of hours to go through it in that kind of detail but what is revealed is that the lamb that was slain but yet lives is creating a kingdom of priests from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's what he's doing. That's his activity. That's his, his process. And we, we, we know that immediately from the last chapter in Matthew, the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of every tribe and language and nation. Disciples of what? Disciples of the Lamb that was slain. Disciples of the one who loved his enemies even though they, they killed him and yet was victorious. Those kind of people. People who are like that. That's what the lion is doing. He's he's turned himself or he's revealed himself as a lamb that was slain and yet lives. And in that process he is creating his church, his people, his bride. So that's the first strong image we have of the lamb and what the lamb is doing in Revelation. And if we move ahead to chapter 7, I've titled this the tribe of the lamb. Um... Different titles have been used, but, but we have here another situation where a question is posed. And, uh, 
The question actually comes in chapter 6. But, but the question is this. On the day of the Lord, when all these crazy, incredible, judgmental fire and types of things are all happening, who can stand? Who can withstand the day of the Lord? Justice will be brought. Uh, the, the, he is depicted not just as a lamb, but as a judge in Revelation. And, and when all of this is happening, and the end of days comes, and the day of the Lord, the final one, is upon us, who can stand? Who can possibly survive? That's the question in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, the answer is given. And I want to read a portion of it. Here's who can stand. And I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes. And so the white robes is, is clearly an image of the fact that they're, they're blameless, they're holy, they've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And so they're, they're without sin. They're not deceivers. They're, they're not liars. They're not violent. They're holy people. And they held palm branches in their hands. Not swords, not spears, not guns, but palm branches, the symbol of peace. So these holy, these holy pure people holding palm branches from every tribe and language and nation that the, that the Lamb has brought together as his kingdom of priests that, that, that are, are followers of him. And, and this is who can stand. And they were shouting with a great roar. Salvation comes from our our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And how do they present themselves? As great and mighty warriors? You know, the, the, the lion of Zion? You know, the, the one who can pull the sword out of the stone and fight mightily? They present themselves as worshipers in white robes, waving palm branches, reminiscent, of course, of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And what was he entering to do? To be slaughtered. And those people then didn't know, but we know. And we choose to be like those people in Jerusalem, wearing white and welcoming our king who will be slaughtered by his enemies, who will love his enemies. And that is the reason why the, 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 the welling up of worship in our hearts for this king who would fight in exactly the opposite way that this world fights. The upside down kingdom turning it around. The king who dies for his people instead of the people who are forced to die for their king. But there's more. The army of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 14. Who triumphs over the beast and those who worship the power and principalities and kingdoms of this world? That's where you get the whole 666 and all of that controversial stuff. And it's depicted in in these verses as it is the lamb and those who have not bowed and worshipped the beast. So who triumphs? Who wins the battle? The ones who worship correctly. The battle is, is, is won through worship of the Lamb. What we do here in Sunday mornings, Revelation pulls back the curtain of history and says, we, out there in the world we think the, the way to win is to fight and to use power and to, to get it over other people and get our way. 
And we come in here and the curtain is pulled back and, and, and Jesus shows us that that's not the way the lamb fights. That's not his methodology. And in the spiritual realm, what we do when we worship the lamb is more powerful in battle than anything we would do with sticks and stones. We participate in the suffering of Christ. And this is how we do battle if we are followers of the Lamb. Because he does not come as an enemy. He comes as one who loves his enemies. And we become like him a little bit when we worship. And we enter a totally different kind of battle As I said before, foolishness to the world makes no sense. But we know from Revelation that it is those who worship the Lamb who can stand on that day and no one else. And even as we stand with Him now, using His methods to fight His battle through worship and praise and love and grace and sacrifice, that we are defeating and showing how unworthy those who fight other ways are in the final end. The demons know. That's why they keep us from worship. Because it is the power of God. Let us close then with um, the last two chapters. Just going to read a few verses out of these chapters just to, to bring it home as, as John's vision from God does. In chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me. I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And here we have that mashup of symbols, right? A lamb that's slain and yet lives is a, is a, is a groom. And, and the bride is the church, the people who are true worshipers of the lamb. And it brings to mind, doesn't it, the parable of Jesus, where the, where the virgins are in the room with their lamps waiting for the, bride, for the groom to come. And some of them let their lamps go out. And as a result, they go out to the markets of this world seeking for resources to return. And then the groom appears, and they're not ready. They're they're shopping in the world instead of keeping their lamp bright in worship and adoration, waiting patiently for the groom to come. And here John sees that fruition in his vision. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Chapter Verse 22. I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And those who worship the Lamb are the kingdom of priests, not of warriors, for we fight a different way, a kingdom of priests. There's no need of a temple. There's no need of some you know, earthly coercive means of, of getting people to worship because the Lamb is the temple. And the city has no need of a sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city. And who is the light? The Lamb is the light. Talk about mashing up symbols. A lion who is a lamb who dies but yet lives 
and is a temple and a light. In other words, we don't need anything else. He's everything. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter. Now I know I've skipped over the judgment portions of the book. We can't cover everything in one, in one Sunday. But obviously, if this place is holy and pure, then all that is not holy and all that is impure will be burned away. It can be no other way. It's real. We don't want to be on the other side. Neither do we want our friends and family to be there. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter. For anyone who practices such shameful idolatry and dishonesty, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And again, it's the Lamb. The central imagery. Chapter 22, verse 1. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. The water of life comes from the Lamb. And and verse, verse 3 of chapter 22. No longer will there be a curse Upon anything. Upon anything. So we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. And it's removed. The curse is removed. There will be no curse upon anything that exists on that day. For For the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there. And his servants will worship him. I don't think it could be more clear. The most important thing you and I can do to participate in the coming of God's kingdom when we pray according to the way Jesus taught us to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The most important thing we can do to participate in the coming of that kingdom is to worship the Lamb. Worship the Lamb. Every time we find that white-robed multitude in the book of Revelation, they are worshiping the Lamb. Are we among them? Am I among them? Are you among them? the ones who worship the Lamb that was slain and yet lives.